Hello and welcome. I'm Sarah Howard, and this is the Track 2 Podcast. While typically you're used to hearing me with my co-host, Joanne, I have a special series for you from my time in Davos, speaking with leaders from a variety of industries on the fast-growing topic of ESG. These episodes will take a slightly different format than we've done in the past, but we're excited to share these conversations with you. Before we dive in, I want to start off with some definitions and context. First, what does ESG stand for? It's environmental, social, and governance. The term has really taken off the last couple years as a way to bring topics of sustainability, social issues, compliance, and more all together in one place. One thing I've found important and useful about it is how it's helping to bring all these conversations together and making it less siloed. While ESG is no silver bullet, it is a helpful framework for the conversation about how we move forward. Since my guest today is in venture capital, one of the sectors driving much of the proliferation of ESG and capital markets, I want to go a little deeper into understanding what ESG means from the perspective of an investment analysis. So here are what many investors are considering when looking at an investment through an ESG lens. Now, bear with me, this is going to be a lot of numbers. First, climate change remains the most important specific ESG issue considered by many money managers in asset-weighted terms. The assets affected by this criterion increased by 39% in 2020 to $4.2 trillion. Next, anti-corruption was the largest governance criterion, with a growth of 10% from 2018. Board issues also ranked high among the top specific ESG criterion, affecting $2.2 trillion in assets under management, which is a 66% increase from 2018. Sustainable natural resources in agriculture grew by 81% to $2.4 trillion in assets under management. It's also ranked as the second most heavily weighted environmental issue for institutional investors and represents a 95% increase since 2018. And finally, conflict risk was the largest social criterion for assets under management, although it did see a decrease from 2018 of 22%. So overall, we're just seeing really significant numbers and increase for this framework that was been titled as ESG, but has lots of different topics and considerations and basically risk frameworks for understanding what that actually means for different investors and for different companies. So Gallup has been regularly polling investors since 2020 on this topic. In their most recent survey, polled investors on their understanding of and attitudes towards ESG frameworks in their investment decisions. And here are two of their findings I thought were interesting. First, nearly 50% of investors are interested in sustainable investing, although only one in four admit to knowing much about it. And second, roughly one in four say they'll look into corporate governance policies or social values advocated by the company leadership before buying. Similarly, they will research environmental record or impact of a company. Gallup has been regularly checking in on the attitudes towards sustainable investments and how they've been shifting over time. And there has been a steady increase in the last couple years in terms of both interest and understanding of what it means. Although ultimately Gallup found that returns are still the highest priority for investors. So I I wanted to also add a few more terms before we jump into the interview, just to make sure that everyone has the same foundational context. These are terms that are pretty familiar at this point, but I just want to make sure we don't skip over them. First is capital markets, 
which is the part of the financial system concerned with raising capital by deals in shares, bonds, and other long-term investments. And then venture capital, which is a form of private equity financing that is provided by venture capital firms or funds to startups, early stage, and emerging companies that have been deemed to have high growth potential or which have demonstrated high growth already. These venture capital firms typically raise what are called funds from investors, which are referred to as LPs or limited partners. There are a lot of different kinds of investors and investments, but these are two that are relevant to our conversation in this episode. So with that context, let's go ahead and jump into the interview. Jacques-Philippe Pinoget is a passionate advocate at the intersection of innovation and diversity. He's the founder and CEO of Goodlight Capital, which has the vision to back mission-driven, underrepresented founders who scale for global impact. Goodlight uses collective expert intelligence and tech innovation in order to deliver consistent investment performance while helping to create companies that will solve some of the biggest issues of our time. Jacques-Philippe has a background in private equity at Barclays and Pine Ridge Investments. He's a former founder and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He is also a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. He received his Bachelor of Science in Finance from Georgetown University and his MBA from Dartmouth. You're most likely to find him practicing Quapurita in Brooklyn. Thanks so much for being here with me. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It's a pleasure. So I wanted to start off by asking, what first got you interested in investing? So I've been interested in investing and business for a very long time. So my parents moved to the States after high school in in Haiti. Mm. And my mom actually did high school here. Mm. And when they had me, they didn't have means particularly. And so my name, Jacques Philippe, is comprised of the names of two great uncles of mine who were really successful business people. And you know, whether that contributed or whatever it is, I've always been into that. I took my first finance class. I was 10 years old and you know, I was selling candy. I've, I've done it all. And when I think of my career, I've largely been involved in that space, mm-hmm. right? So I worked for some large investment firms. I built a fast-growing company done that in on the nonprofit side although I've never worked for one but I've built a number of nonprofits and so investing is just something that I enjoy whether it's purely business and return driven or investing in people which at the end of the day is also very important to me and as far as I can be supportive to the required growth for me it feels like a real privilege mm-hmm. and so that's the lens with which I come to investing. So I'd love to hear your short version (laughs) intro that you did on the panel, because I think that framework is great as well, especially how you understand the role of geography. Sure. It's funny because it's been an evolution. And so we always ask people, where are you from? Yeah. And I've always felt that was a limiting question from a limited perspective. And I've given a number of different responses depending on how I felt that particular day because I can reasonably say I'm from New York because I was born there. I can say I'm from Miami because I grew up there. I can say I'm from Haiti because my family is from there. But what I say now, which is my current truth, is that I was born in New York. I grew up in Miami. 
I spent my summers in Haiti, which is where my family spent most of the last several hundred years. I am part of two million years of human history, and I fully embrace that. I don't ascribe to any of the traditional human-made constructs. So whether it's regionalism, theology, any of the things that limit us and separate us, I don't ascribe to those. I believe that I'm of everything and of nothing, and I find that perspective to be really liberating and allow me to push myself while forgiving myself and being really comfortable in my skin and really being able to connect with others uh, with a level of depth that my previous paradigms didn't allow for. That really ties into how you see investing. So I'm excited to explore that more and why I find it so helpful to get personal context. These are like important ways of understanding how this impacts your values. So on that, let's bring it up to what you're working on. Tell us about Good Light and your vision for that and what your investment framework is. Sure. You know, I think you're exactly correct. And that's one of the things I look for, whether in business or otherwise, is integrity, right? And integrity means being consistent throughout. And so I agree with you that it it's a good exercise to have a sense for what someone is truly about, what they've shown themselves to be about, and what they're working on in a particular time. And if, if it's not consistent, it tends to be difficult to execute. And so you're absolutely correct what myself and my team are doing a good like capital. I sometimes joke with people that it's literally what I have always done or what I would do for free, but I'm able to call it work, right? Because what does it comprise of? It's investing, which we touched upon, I enjoy. It's entrepreneurship because we're doing it in a different way and I'll elaborate more on that part. It's mentorship and support because when we back the founders, these are amazing humans that we're supporting for the long run. And then it's also impactful and purpose-driven, right? I've created a number of nonprofits that focus on things I care about, given our model and the fact that we back founders who are solving for significant challenges of our time across sustainability, health, education, future of employment, fintech, it fits that as well. So it makes it really easy for me to quote unquote, if people are listening, I'm doing air quotes, go to work. It's what I would be doing anyway. And I think when I interact with any of the constituents that I describe, they can feel that. It's that sense of authenticity. Now, as far as the community part and the differentiating factor, which ties into what I shared as far as not having limitations and being fully connected. When we think of venture investing and how it's historically been done, for those who are not familiar, it's basically sourcing deals, it's evaluating said deals, and then it's supporting the companies that you ultimately invest. Historically, you've had two or three partners and their team who do all of those things. And if you look at the data over the last 50 years, 75 to 80% of people who go to do that type of work don't actually outperform the public markets. They have no business doing it. They're not successful. They're not able to raise follow-on funds because they're not successful. This is one of the few businesses where a model that doesn't work has been allowed to persist, and that's because it's so private. People go, they raise capital from their friends and people who know them. They fail, and then they go do something else. So when we looked at this, we said, all right, there are certain aspects of venture that we think are meritorious to continue, and so we want to do that. And there are certain elements that we think should be changed and optimized, and we should do that. And so the way we went about it is incorporating collective expertise or community 
as well as technology. So at Goodlight, we have thousands of people in our community, and they're incentivized to participate in all those aspects of the business. So it's sourcing deals. So if myself and my team might have historically brought in a thousand deals in the next year, if we have thousands of people participating and bringing deals, it's going to be a thousand times a factor of something. So it's by design, the top of our funnel is significantly larger than a traditional fund. And, and that creates variability and optionality, which is a positive thing. Then the next step is evaluating companies. Historically, again, it would have been me and my team evaluating, and I think I'm amazing and I'm brilliant and I have no boundaries. But what I do also know is that the collective mind and being able to bring in multiple inputs can enhance an outcome. And so we'll have 30, 40, 50, 80 relevant sector experts participating in the diligence. So we have fewer blind spots. We're more thorough. We're less biased. So when somebody comes across the table that looks like me, sounds like me, went to the schools I went to, I as an individual don't have as much influence to just invest in that person is we're going to be far more thorough and results we've had so far with respect to our investments shows that we're on to something because it's going really well and so there the bottom of the funnel for us is a lot tighter more thorough so that's further enhanced and then similarly with supporting the companies in our portfolio instead of just the team thousands of people who have a vested interest, who want to be supportive for lots of different reasons. And when you tie all those things together, plus our target, our focus on a demographic that has historically outperformed other types of investment, we see it as literally creating the future of venture capital. Mm -hmm. So I expect that in the next five to 10 years, when we speak again, and as we continue to speak, you'll find that we should be one of the largest funds because our model scales very well since it's not so dependent on any one or two individuals while still delivering top returns. And when you can do that at scale, that allows you to really address the types of issues that we're talking about addressing. It's easy to say, I'm going to back founders who are doing sustainability, health and wellness, education, future of employment, fintech. But those are large, right? The size of traditional venture funds are actually tiny, right? So after business school, I worked for a fund. We had $500 billion in assets under management. That doesn't exist in venture. But our model can actually scale to something of consequence whereby we can be relevant to the larger allocators of capital, the public pension funds, the corporate pensions, the sovereigns. And so we're really building something that we think can stand the test of time, be more inclusive, and really revolutionize the venture capital landscape. One of the things I love about what you just explained in your model is it's looking at how venture has worked, how you can innovate on that, and how that actually solves for the, like, values you're setting out. You didn't talk about the underrepresented founders as not having access. You talked about having a larger funnel. That's often the problem for underrepresented founders getting access to capital is networks. And so solving for networks is going to automatically start solving for that value-based framework that you have. So I love that perspective on how to think about the framework because it pulls in people who maybe think that those kinds of frameworks are too soft or not like sure. a business imperative, but it is. Sure. So I love that explanation. And that kind of shifts me into thinking about the value side. So something you mentioned on the panel was the values alignment when you think about who you're investing in. So I'd love to hear more about how you think about that and why that's important. Sure. 
So I have a friend who would always say the average relationship between an investor and a founder is actually longer than the average length of a marriage. Mm -hmm. And so if one believes that you should be really thoughtful with respect to who you marry, (laughs) you should do the same with respect to the founders that you back. Mm -hmm. And so for us, values are big deal. The, The name Good Light is not by accident. And we think that supporting founders who are going to reflect us positively in the world is extremely important because we believe that with our support, it increases the likelihood of their success in a meaningful way. And so we want to really catalyze people who are just amazing with the right values who are then going to go out and support others. So it's not just about the financial return. It's about the, the full return on our full human capacity. And we don't think those things are mutually exclusive. And we actually think the person with integrity who cares about others, who's going to support their team in a fulsome manner, who's going to be thoughtful of the communities in which they operate, their suppliers, their investors. Well, that kind of person is building a more resilient business that will stand the test of time in ways that a very singularly focused founder who only cares about the bottom line will fail. And I've been around for a while. There is a time where only shareholder returns could have worked. There are more of us who are focused on things other than just the bottom line. And companies are paying for that if they're not thoughtful of it. And so it's important that the leadership from the very beginning is conscious of where the world is going And there needs to be a certain level of integrity such that it's clear, like, they really care. It's not just greenwashing. And uh, values are definitely the top of what we do and just ethics and being a good person. So a lot of what you just explained could be applied to a term that's going around, which is ESG. Sure. And I think one of the things we've seen, particularly in the last couple of years, is a movement in the investing community towards ESG, which is going to have a big impact on how ESG is adopted. So I'm curious what you've seen in the investment community as far as ESG and how that has, you know, from what I understand, it necessarily maybe has impacted because it's already naturally how you're seeing <laughs> your investment framework. But I'm just curious, maybe just to take a step back and explore what your perspective is on the investment community at large when it comes to ESG. So, you know, I think this is a real-time thing that's evolving. Mm. And I think it's moving even quicker now. Literally just in the last few years, most GPs would find it difficult to go to investors and lead with, I'm an impact fund or ESG-focused Even if they really believe, it'd probably be the fourth or fifth thing. Mm -hmm. They would lead with, hey, we're looking for founders who are going to provide 25x in the next three years, big Mm -hmm. markets, high margin. Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, they are also doing good things in the world. Whereas now you're starting to see that flip and you're starting to see more investors who are looking for ESG and, and different requirements with respect to their investments. And I think some of that is also tied to a changing of the guard. Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot of capital that's moving from one generation to the next. Mm-hmm. And you know, millennials and, and other folks who are now starting to make investment decisions actually care a lot more about these types of things. 
and it's affecting the way that funds are structured. Not so long ago, I uh, moderated a conversation with Sir Ronald Cohen, and the topic was the $30 trillion gap between ESG and impact investing. And mm. and the idea was that in the previous year, over more than $30 trillion in the global capital markets had moved into ESG-related strategies, but less than $1 trillion had gone into impact. And the mm. difference being impact is what can be measured because it's often difficult to really assess the, the impact that's happening there. And so people who are allocating capital, it's clear that they're looking for purpose, they're looking for impact. And so the opportunity is in as far as investors can show that the capital they're allocating is actually yielding results. And there's literally now, I think it's over 40 trillion that's gone towards ESG, that's looking for homes with those types of firms and strategies. And for us, we probably would have done it anyway, but it's not so bad to be on what we believe to be on the right side of what's happening in the particular trend. Yeah, exactly. A lot of what you're talking about there is both ideas and how to think about the investment, but I'm curious how that G part's coming in with the governance. And you mentioned earlier, we've had more of a shareholder driving growth kind of model, but looking at the way that climate is starting to shift the business imperative, sure. <laughs> risk management, and, and how do you actually think about these things more than just values, although I think those are intertwined. Sure. And some of that has to be designed in how we actually measure these things. What's, what are people accountable for, not just what would we like to have? You know, that's a very good question. I can't say that they're really sound solutions yet. And certain parts of the world are, are more advanced than others. We're here in Davos, and I think Europe is actually ahead of the U.S. with respect to a lot of this. There's kind of weighted impact accounting that has recently been developed and it's coming along. It's taking longer to get to kind of the, the venture side of things because it's so private, it's small companies. And like I said earlier, the amount of capital, even though venture takes up a lot of space on the news, mm -hmm. when you think of actual capital that's moving, it's a very small percentage of the global capital market. So yep. from a governance perspective, when senators and congressmen are talking, that's not necessarily where they're seeing to move the needle. Mm -hmm. So I think near term, a lot of that is going to rest more on the GPs themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, with that being said, if you ask me, should governments and should there be more regulations around that mm -hmm. to help support uh, more capital going towards backing founders who are solving solutions that relate to climate, be a, a resounding yes. Yeah. And there are models in the world where that's already happening. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I need to start lobbying uh, <laughs> domestically uh, to, to get some of that going. But it's so important and it's you know, in some ways infuriating mm -hmm. that there isn't actually more work and more thought going into that subject. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's one of the interesting things about this moment that we're in is it's such a massive problem and we're in such a crisis state that what is really important is everyone steps up in whatever way they can. Sure. <laughs> and it's very collaborative. And I think that's actually something for me that's particularly interesting in the business space when it comes to these questions is 
fundamentally our economy is based on competition. Sure. But I think when it comes to this issue, collaboration is the only way we're going to get through. And so I'm really curious about how that starts to shift even how we understand the role of business and how it functions and how collaboration can actually drive better outcomes, growth, like all the things that we've wanted from business from the economy, but in a different framework. Sure. That's my hopeful take on things. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Obviously, we've kind of tied in collaboration and community literally into every aspect of our business. So you're speaking to the choir and we yeah. believe in it. And we think similar models are not only applicable to so many other sectors, but they'll enhance those sectors. So in my view, the prevailing approach, which is competition-based, mm-hmm. comes from a scarcity mindset. And over time, we as humans have lots of wars and fighting and needing to hoard. Mm -hmm. And so the model, whether business or otherwise, stems from that. And so what we need is more of an abundance of mindset. And that leads to more collaboration and community orientation Mm -hmm. with business and investments and all of those aspects of life to be positioned as enhancers to our overall overall well-being. Mm. And so it's it's really important that business leaders become more conscious of that mm. and that they understand literally collaboration and community should actually significantly enhance their business and, and especially their bottom line because yeah. there tends to be confusion around that, <laughs> but it's not the case, mm. right? So, you know, people should really look at their business models and figure out where and how bringing in other stakeholders and accounting for them will actually benefit their businesses. And I mean, I guess to a certain extent with B certification in the U.S., there's the B Corps is a move in that direction, which allows companies to have more latitude. One of the companies I created a decade ago was actually one of the first benefit corporations. And at that time, you had to explain you know, why are you going to get it? The lawyers are like, what are you doing? There's mm-hmm. enough case law. But now there's thousands of companies, Patagonia, some large ones as well, that are benefit corporations. And what that does is it gives the companies more latitude yeah. to take more stakeholders into account. That particular company that I created was a solar product company. There was a case study written about it at Dartmouth, and it was taught in various places. So I've been on this beat for quite some time. And as an investor and business person, I think it's important to be expansive and creative and that, but then also have your feet firmly planted on the ground and and know where we are and where you can make things happen. And so that's part of the tension that is always a top of mind for me. Yeah, I heard in another session, just this idea of investors are looking for this, this collaborative relationship with regulation and, you know, growth. So they're looking for ESG stuff, but also and, and managing risk, but also not looking for more litigation. Exactly. So there's some balance between those two. I think that's an ongoing game that's been around for a while. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to hear if you have an example of how, and we can use ESG as a framework here, but how something like ESG might specifically come up as you're evaluating a potential deal. And I'm thinking of like, relationships with supply chain or like some of those more tangible things that might come up as you're thinking about, okay, how is this company addressing some of these issues, even without this kind of terminology or frameworks, just like, hey, this is an important thing. Sure. So, you know, I'm, I'm about honesty. We're a new firm. We're mm-hmm. an early stage investment firm, mm-hmm. if you will. So I tell 
myself and our team the same thing that I tell other companies. Mm-hmm. Initially, you kind of have to pick your battles. And, mm-hmm. and so for us, given that we specifically back women and various underrepresented groups, that's part of ESG. Yes. And then also given that we're backing companies that are literally working on things that relate to sustainability, health, mm-hmm. education, mm-hmm. future employment, mm-hmm. fintech, that's also part mm-hmm. of ESG. Mm-hmm. And so from our view, initially, that's quite a bit yeah. for us to <laughs> wrap our minds around yeah. and be able to manage and yeah. do well. And then as we grow, then we could put more specific resources towards measuring some of the other aspects of it around yeah. supply chain and carbon emissions. There's a company that we invested in that's developed engine for electric vehicles, mm-hmm. same form factor, two to three times the power. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's better for the environment right. than what's historically been done. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of where our story ends for now. Yeah. Whereas at some point, it'd be great to be like, okay, for every engine that goes out, it displaces this much CO2. And then we could have a tracker and we could, you know, we could go wild with it and there's a tracker and it's, that's amazing. Yeah. But you need resources to be able to do that level mm-hmm. of reporting. So for us, it's, it's an iterative process. It makes sense that you'll grow with the companies. Exactly. And going back to what you said earlier about values and integrity and ethics and how you invest in your founders, then naturally that should be part of the growth. So I see that as a framework for seeing, like, this is where we're going. Sure. If you start with a good foundation, you're going to be able to go there. And I, I definitely hear your point of, like, where do you start with some of these things? That's what I've heard, heard in a lot of sessions is it's such a complex issue. Yeah. And you have to think, what can we do immediately? What's the long-term impact? And yeah. I think that those are some of the challenges that a lot of people are wrapping their heads around. And where is your place in that solution? Yeah. So if you are a large corporation with a global footprint right now, you should be thinking about things differently exactly. <laughs> than a startup. And I, I heard that dynamic in a session yesterday of like, okay, it's really hard for startups sometimes to meet similar benchmarks sure. because they're trying to build the best trying, trying to figure out where they can get their next meal. <laughs> trying to survive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is a different mindset. But. And so how do we, as a, a community, understand where people are at different stages and keep the same sort of standards and working towards the same things? I think those are the kinds of nuances that are hard but really important. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Okay, so I wanted to bring us back into our space that we're here in Davos. And this is kind of a two-part question. One, why are you in Davos? And two, what would you say to this community? To the Davos community? Mm -hmm. So I'm in Davos for many reasons, not least of which that I've been part of one of the World Economic Forum's communities for quite some time, the Young Global Leader Community. Mm -hmm. And the underlying idea there is it's a community comprised of people who are looking to make the world better Mm. and it's very global. Mm. And by convening and working together, we're able to serve as catalysts for our respective endeavors. Mm. And so I've been involved with the YGL for nearly 10 years and it's been usually rewarding and beneficial for the various things I've been involved with. And I've also been able to be very helpful to other members mm-hmm. of the community. And I think that dovetails into, you know, the next part of your question. What I would say to folks who are in Davos now 
is I think it's important that we evolve with the times Mm -hmm. and that we're honest with ourselves. And I think as we go through that exercise, inclusivity becomes a key thing to consider. I was in a session yesterday and I shared this with the group. Many of the things that we're solving for are literally problems that many of the people who are here in Davos created, right? Whether it's climate or health, a lot of these are man-made problems and the people with the most influence had that influence to create the problems. And I think there's a great deal of hubris to believe that the solutions would only come from that group of people. And so I'm not saying that people here in Davos are exclusively of that mindset, Mm. but I think it's really, really important that we all take a strong look in the mirror and ensure that we're being mindful of including as many voices as possible towards the solution in, in like real ways, right? Mm. Because, you know, some of the things we're discussing now is great. ESG and impact are actually becoming positive. So many people who 10 years ago were strictly bottom line driven are now talking about ESG and impact. Well, there's a whole other cadre of people who have been at the receiving end of all the negative externalities of the practices of the last hundred years who probably understand what needs to be done better than people who have not had to deal with the issues as much. And so that's one of the key things that I would share with people who are here in Davos. Be as inclusive as possible, be honest with ourselves, and really look to move the needle in ways that are meaningful and not just lip service. Well said. Jacques Philippe, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It's a real pleasure and looking forward to continuing to collaborate with you. Likewise. So there are a couple topics that Jacques Philippe covers in this conversation that I wanted to dig in a little more on. First, I wanted to return back to the Gallup survey because one of the things this study is driving at is the role of values in investor decisions. So in their survey, 68% were likely to avoid stocks or funds associated with companies that contradict their values. Ultimately, the survey concludes, quote, Investors are receptive to the idea of using their investments to promote their values, either by choosing stocks that align with those tenants or avoiding stocks that contradict them, end quote. While this has been true for the market for some time, what I think is different is the sharp rise in the demand in the last two to three years for investment opportunities and venture capital firms with an investment framework that fully integrates this kind of model. This is what Jacques Philippe is both building and promoting. And one of the statistics that Jacques Philippe references in our conversation is that $3 trillion that has moved into ESG investment strategies. The rate of capital moving into ESG is staggering, really, which is why so many people are talking about it. And just to give our listeners a sense of that, here are some of the numbers from the last two years. An estimated $120 billion poured into sustainable investments in 2021 doubling the 51.1 capital captured by ESG funds in 2020. That's more than doubling the 50 billion captured by ESG funds in 2020. The number of sustainable funds available to U.S. investors grew up to 534 in 2021, which was a 36% increase from 2020. Sustainable investing assets currently total 17.1 trillion. 
This represents 33%, or one in three dollars, of the 51.4 trillion in total U.S. assets under professional management. So we're seeing one in three dollars in professional management has an ESG strategy. Similarly, according to Bloomberg, global ESG assets are on track to exceed 53 trillion by 2025, representing more than a third of the 140 trillion in projected total assets under management. Again, this is globally versus the first number was in U.S. assets. So while these numbers are significant and show the rate of change in capital markets, there is a nuance that I think is often lost in the conversation, and that's the difference between ESG strategies and impact strategies for investment. The current evolving model of ESG is at its core is about risk, whereas impact is more about net positive. While this might seem similar enough, when it comes to the kinds of decisions that are being made, they can be quite different. So for example, I was recently in a conversation with an investor during Climate Week at this UN event for impact investing. And one of the things he pointed out is that under some ESG strategies, an investment firm could consider a new innovation to, say, bring solar power to military machinery as an ESG-aligned investment, whereas an impact fund would never invest in any military because it doesn't fit within the framework of net positive or within an SDG framework, which is what a lot of impact investment strategies are built on. And this is part of the reason that we're seeing a large discrepancy in the dollars allocated to ESG funds versus impact funds, which is something else that Jacques Philippe called out when he was noting the $30 trillion in ESG strategies versus the $1 trillion in impact investment strategies. So there is this big gap between those two strategy frameworks. And this is why some would argue that impact investing and ESG are just not the same thing, which is true as these terms are somewhat self-defined as the space continues to evolve. And if we remember back to the first episode with Harold, the EU has been a significant player in pushing forward these underlying concepts of ESG, which really is about expanding the scope of responsibility that corporations, and by extension their investors, have on the impact and externalities of their businesses, increasing their responsibility for those. And this is sometimes referred to as the EU taxonomy, which we also get into in that episode. So this brings me to the second theme I wanted to cover, and that is stakeholders. So at the end of our conversation, Jacques Philippe mentions that those most affected by the negative externalities of this current model of capital markets and our financial system need to be key stakeholders in building a new pathway forward. This is something that we're starting to see more and more, but could definitely see more of. So who is in the room where these decisions are made? How is their perspective being included in decision-making? These are the kinds of questions that I think we as consumers can actually be a part of holding companies responsible to. We need to ask these kinds of questions because these kinds of questions fundamentally matter to how decisions are made. And finally, I want to emphasize this fundamental idea of value-based frameworks. This is an idea that we often refer to on the podcast, and it can be applied to many different topics or sectors. And when it comes to our financial system, a values-based framework is essential. We can no longer accept anything less. And while ESG is not the answer, one thing I appreciate about it is that it's a step in the direction of building more transparency 
in the system and revealing the values we currently have and the ones we aspire to inside the mechanics of these complex systems. So thanks for joining me today and exploring this conversation on ESG and venture capital. This actually concludes this special series from Davos. Thanks so much for following along. And stay tuned for when we release our next season.